Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Uh, anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome to you. Welcome to anybody tuning in online for the first time. I'd like to begin our weekly class most of the time with some kind of topic to have you discuss amongst uh, small groups with the intention of helping you develop some community, meet some people. It's a central aspect of Buddhism to develop community, a Buddhist community. And, um, you know, if you just come to a class and you don't talk to each other, you never feel like you really quite connect, quite know each other. So for a long time now, I've been trying to, do, you know, offer some ways for you to talk to each other at home. I put you in these breakout groups, breakout rooms in, on Zoom. Here in the room, you get to choose, talk to people. I want to talk a lot about um, the mind, our, our minds tonight, and, and our relationship to our minds and our mind's habits, and, and the, the Buddhist understanding that just about all of our suffering is created in our minds and our relationship to our minds. And um, of course, our the, the Buddhist path is, has the goal of ending suffering. How are we going to end suffering? And um, the answer is we're going to end suffering by radically changing our relationship to our reactive, habitual uh, relationship to our minds. Uh, one, anyways, it's the angle that I'm going to take tonight. We can also talk about our relationship to pleasure and pain, but also that is all perceived in the mind. So just reflecting for a moment, what's, what's, what's your relationship like to your mind? How do you feel about your thinking mind? How quickly are you like, it's fucked. It sucks to live with my mind. Um, or maybe not, maybe not. Maybe you've been meditating for a while and you're kind of like, oh, well, you know, I have a pretty loose relationship to my mind. I heard a, a one teacher who took the, um, he took the AA questions about, do you think you have a drinking problem? There's like, I think it's 20 questions. Do you think you have a drink? You know, you might, you might be an alcoholic if, and he took it and he said, let's just replace thinking with drinking. You might have a thinking problem. If you, you know, lose sleep due to your thoughts. <laughs> If uh, sometimes you, you can't get up in the morning and get going without thinking first. <laughs> if, um, you, you know, your thinking is creating difficulties in your relationships. <laughs> you know, there's all of those ways that our relationship to our mind um, creates most of the, wouldn't, would you say, most of the difficulties in your life or in your own head? How you're responding, how you're reacting, how you're relating to what you're perceiving is happening and how your mind is telling you you should 
suffer about it. You should be angry. You should be afraid. You should be worried. You should be stressed. You. So part of the question I have, you know, and for the icebreaker is, um, you know, how's your relationship to your mind these days? Has meditation helped you shift? Are you starting to change your relationship to, to your mind? Maybe the other thing to reflect on a little bit is um, how do you treat your mind, right? Because I, I feel like I can have this tendency to feel like, well, my mind treats me really poorly. It's critical and it's judgmental and it uh, does a lot of comparing and judging and, and it's quite easy to blame our brains. Like my, my mind is fucked. And there's even that, that saying of like, your mind is an un, it's like an unsafe neighborhood. You shouldn't go there alone, you know, bring backup, check in with your therapist, (laughs) check in with your friends, don't trust your thinking. The untrained mind, there's a a time in in the Buddha's teaching where he says, the untrained worldling, people that don't meditate, that haven't changed their relationship to their minds yet, um, just go through the world annoying each other with their views and opinions. And we don't even realize that uh, these are just views and opinions. We take our thoughts as the truth. And maybe feel a bit like a victim of our own thinking and feel like. um, But then the other angle that I was wondering about is um, how do you treat your mind? How's your relationship to your mind? Are you being kind to your confused mind? Have you taken in the the Dharma, the teachings, the Buddhist teachings that ask us to meet our own minds with compassion and forgiveness, even though it's going to continue to lie to you? And I don't know if you know this yet, but a lot of what arises in your mind is not true. The human mind is a fucking liar. Do you know that? It's hard to, right? Like we just think that, no, not mine. I'm, my mind's telling me the truth, but just easy to reflect back a little bit on all of the fucking lies your mind has told you so far, this incarnation. You can look back and be like, none of that shit was true, but I believed it at the time. For instance, shame. Do you ever experience shame? Shame is that thought, that feeling that arises in the mind that says, I am bad. I'm unworthy. I'm worthless. It's a lie a hundred percent of the time. You ever had a experience of shame? Shame is a hundred percent of the time a lie. I know that's, I'm going to, it's my view and my opinion. (laughs) It's a hundred percent of the time your mind lying to you about your own worth. But it's, a, you know, it's on the seven deadly sins. It's normal. It's, you know, it's, it's part of humanity. We all experience that on one level or another, some shame. But it's a lie. It's not true. There's nothing unworthy about you or unlovable about you. Or, you know, guilt is a different thing. Regret and guilt, and that's different. You know, like when your mind says, like, yo, you really fucked up. Sometimes that's true. <laughs> right? Sometimes that's true. Oh yeah, I really fucked up. I really did something that was regrettable. It's healthy to to have some guilt about actually unskillful actions that we've done. But shame is that story about who you are 
as not being good, not being worthy, not being lovable, that is a lie. Just as one example of the ways that our minds lie to us. So that other perspective of how do you treat your mind? Are you kind to your confused mind? Are you still battling with it? Are you still trying to fight and, you know, destroy your ego? I'm going to dismantle my ego. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to, rather than, the more I've meditated and the more I've, you know, listened to the Buddha's teachings, the more, and, you know, the, the Buddha's relationship to his mind and the confused parts, you know, he talks about it, my mind is still confused. And when that confusion arises, I just say, I see you. I see you, Mara. That ongoing, even the awakened beings who still have a mind that offers unwise views and opinions. And the difference between us unenlightened beings and the enlightened beings is that we still believe the bullshit. Enlightened beings are just like, oh no, that's just bullshit. <laughs> that's bullshit my mind is telling me right now. That's not true. I'm not unworthy. I'm not, you know, pleasure or, you know, there's no material or sensual solution. There's, you know, every time your mind tells you, you'll be happy if you get enough money. How often does your mind tell you that? It's a fucking lie. You can get a lot of money. It won't make you happy. And there's some people in the room on Zoom in the community who got it. They got a lot of fucking money. And they'll tell you, didn't work. Or maybe your mind tells you, but if you were having the right sense pleasures, the right relation, the right kind of sex, that would make me happy. You've had the right kind of sex before, right? Did it work then? Maybe you never have, but you will eventually. <laughs> but the mind that, you know, that says, hey, this material, this sensual, this, nothing works. All of those uh, ideas about sensual or material solutions are dead ends. You know, this is where Buddhism says we have the middle path between the dead end of sense pleasures. It doesn't mean we don't partake in them. It doesn't mean we don't find a, a healthy relationship to sense pleasures. We just don't see them as the source of happiness. We understand that they are not the source of happiness. So how, you know, how's, you, how's your mind? How's your relationship? How do you treat your mind? Maybe if you need a, a more specific prompt, what's one of the really sort of like funny things that your mind does regularly? By funny, I mean disturbing. <laughs> like, you know, funny if you had a sense of humor about how ridiculous it is that your mind regularly tells you, you're going to die alone. Nobody will ever love you. It's not funny when it's happening and you believe it. But if you kind of get some space from you, you're like, wow, that's fucking ridiculous. Wow, my mind hates me. Wants, you know, wants me to feel alone or shame or afraid or. So what are, what's some of the funny, not so funny things that your mind tells you? Small groups, I'll put you guys into breakout rooms in the room find some people you don't know so well so that you can you know tear your heart open to strangers 
we usually start the mindfulness meditation practices by paying attention to our breath and body and then move into the investigation of the feeling tones, first foundation, second foundation. And then the third foundation is when we turn towards our mind and we start to observe the mind. But for tonight's practice, I'm going to pretty quickly invite you to watch your mind, do mindfulness of the mind to observe what we're talking about. Observe how thoughts, where do they arise from? What gives birth to the plan, the memory, the doubt, the worry? the fantasy that your mind goes off on while you're meditating. Observe the beginning, the middle, the end. Um, as we attempt to change our relationships to our minds. So find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. I'll give some guidance. Allowing your eyes to be closed, settling into a posture that feels sustainable, that is relaxed, releasing any unnecessary tension in the body, softening the jaw, the shoulders, the belly. Establishing an inner intention to be kind to be friendly and accepting as we investigate, as we bring mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, kind, investigative awareness to the mind. And of course, use the breath as an anchor here, now, sitting, breathing. But don't try to control your mind. Don't try to stop your thoughts. Just bring awareness to what's happening. What kind of thoughts arise? not intentionally thinking about anything, just watching the mind. Observing, receiving, experiencing what your mind is doing without judgment. Allow it to plan, to remember. Awareness is here, receiving, observing. <clears throat> 
knowing these are plans, memories, hope, fear. Craving, aversion in the mind, observe it. Observe how the mind proliferates one thought leading to the next, this kind of free association. Sometimes there's the image of thoughts are like bubbles floating through an open space of awareness, but these bubbles are proliferating one bubble giving birth to the next thought bubble.
What's your mind thinking about right now? What's your relationship to those thoughts? How much do you believe them? How much can you see them as just the proliferation of the planning mind? Or doubt or fear, knowing both the content and process of these thoughts arising and passing through awareness.
experiment with making more room for the thoughts, not getting so hyper-focused. Thoughts are arising in consciousness and awareness. Let it be more spacious so that you're observing how the mind is producing and proliferating thoughts in an open, spacious awareness. Plans, cravings, aversions, doubts, the hindrances arising, passing, Some of it might even be true, but a healthy skepticism towards your own views and opinions, towards the mind's proliferation. What's your mind thinking about now 
is the past, the future. How is the thought changing, morphing, dissolving, passing, re-arising? Are these thoughts pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Remember that you're here, sitting, breathing, feeling. The mind takes us off into the past, the future, fantasy. Present time awareness 
Now these are just thoughts. I'm going to ask you some rhetorical questions before I get into my talk, part of the talk. <clears throat> How much of the time do you believe your mind? 100% of the time? Are you pretty, pretty sure that your mind is telling you the truth all the time? 99% of the time, 90%, half of the time? How, how much of the time are you kind of like obeying your mind, believing it? I'm not sure what the exact right number, uh, right percentage of the time to believe our minds is. But the more we meditate, the more trustworthy our minds become. Over the years and maybe decades of meditation, um, my experience is, is that eventually your mind will start giving you good advice. It will say, you know, you should really forgive. You should really let go. Once you really download the Dharma, at some point, not just from reading the books, but from the meditation and the years of practice, at some point your mind will start to, you know, give it not, not just lying to you, but um, countering the unskillful thoughts with wisdom because you've embodied it, you've, uh, it's in there. There's a, 
book title, book I never read, lots of books I never read, called uh, Turning the Mind into an Ally. I think it was one of the Shambhala books. Not, not so interested in Shambhala, never read it, but what a great title. Because for me, for sure, <clears throat> when I started, <clears throat> excuse me, meditating, I felt like my mind was uh, for sure my enemy and was trying to kill me and in addiction and in judgment and violence and my mind, um, so much pain, so much confusion, so much ignorance, for sure didn't have my best interest, wasn't an ally to me in any ways, was giving me bad advice after bad advice. But then uh, years into meditation, starting to say like, oh, actually sometimes my mind has some helpful suggestions. <laughs> sometimes my thoughts are kind and compassionate and I remember in recovery, start seeing the, um, you know, not still in recovery, but <laughs> I remember the process in recovery, doing those daily inventories um, where it went from like, I was selfish, dishonest, afraid today to like, I was kind and I was generous and I was honest today. And seeing that shift that was happening in the actions and in the inner attitudes. How much do we believe our minds? How identified? And a little bit of like, why do we take our minds so personally? Why do you, why do we get so identified? So, I mean, I get, I guess I kind of know the answer, but I want to encourage that investigation of, um, you know, we, we have this human form, this body. We've incarnated, we took birth, we're here, and we have these bodies. Part of having a body is having a big brain, big human brain. But, you know, we also have the nervous system, we have the digestive system, we have the, um, you know, with these lungs, you know, a lot of our meditation is we focus our attention on our breath. That's the first instruction, mindfulness of breathing. Um, and as you pay attention to your breath, at some point you see like, oh, it's not, it's not so personal. Why don't walk around being so identified? Like I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. I'm breathing deep. I'm breathing shallow. Unless you're having some problems breathing, you take breathing, you know, just kind of natural part of existence. My body breathes. And you know that, right? Like it breathes all by itself. You're not breathing. Your body's breathing you. <laughs> On some level, right? Like it just does it all by itself. It's not, I'm not so, or, or, or our heart's beating all by itself, just beats. And, and maybe the breath is a, a better, because we don't go around being really identified of like, I am making my heart beat 60 times a minute or whatever the appropriate normal heartbeat is. Is it 60? And, uh, but our minds, we, everything that arises in our, our minds, we take real personal, like, oh, yep, I'm fucking afraid. Fear has arisen in my mind. That's who I am. I'm angry. I'm, uh, you know, worried. I'm horny. <laughs> I'm lonely. I'm insecure. I'm anxious. I'm depressed because those thoughts have arisen in our mind and we believe them. 
And we take it so personal, like, well, everything, all of my thoughts are me, even though we know like, well, my body just breathes all by itself. My heart beats all by itself. But I feel like until you start meditating, most of us don't really realize the human mind thinks all by itself. We have that unexamined sense that I am thinking. I am, my, my, you know, whatever arises, I'm doing that. And it's just the way our first person language, I had this thought. My mind, I'm feeling. At some point, I'm sure a lot of you are having this experience or will. You start to see like, oh, it's not that personal. It's not just my mind. And it's one of the wonderful parts of Sangha of coming and listening to the Dharma and talking to each other and doing this little exercises at the beginning. And everybody's saying like, oh yeah, my mind's fucking nuts. It's a three ring circus in there. And there's a fucking soundtrack to the tumbling clowns in my head that are angry and afraid and nervous and you know self-centered and horny all the time and lonely all the time and deluded about some material or sensual solution and we start to normalize it the more we talk about it and another good book title um i did read this book buddhist psychologist Mark Epstein wrote a book called Thoughts Without a Thinker. And the more you start to turn and observe your mind, and I didn't put it in the instructions, but it's an interesting part of the instruction when you're watching the thoughts, watching your mind, to ask, well, who's thinking these thoughts? Where is the self, the I, the me? I feel like it's I'm thinking, but where's the I? Where's the thinker? I'm sitting here just trying to be present and all of these thoughts are passing through awareness, but who's thinking them? The, and then you start to see, well, there's some volitional thoughts and there's some non-volitional thoughts. But, you know, sometimes you sit down, I've given this advice a whole bunch of times, people say like, and just on this last retreat I was teaching, somebody said to me, you know, I just, my my mind is just, I'm just planning all of the time and I just can't stop planning and thinking and thinking and thinking. And, and uh, you know, on, on some level, like normal, of course, it's just what the mind does. It thinks, it plans. And then we practice meditation. So you sit down in meditation on some level and you say, okay, for this next 30 minutes, 45 minutes, however long you're going to meditate for, 20, 10, however long. You say, I'm not going to think. It's going to be present. And then you fail, right? Because you sit here and you say, I'm going to be present. And part of what you're present with is your thoughts. Say so here and you say, I'm just going to be present. And you watch the, what we call non-volitional thoughts. I don't, you didn't sit here and say, I'm going to think the whole time. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to observe. I'm going to be mindful. But part of what we're mindful of is the mind thoughts without a thinker. So I said to this guy on the retreat, and um, I say to all of you, what if we flipped the schedule? 
rather than spending all day every day identified with our minds, thinking about everything, and then take a half hour to meditate and not think. What if you just practice, tried to practice, be present all day? Observing the mind, thoughts will come and go, but just be, be present all day. And then give yourself an hour every evening to plan. Where you sit down and you say, you know, right now I'm going to make some plans. I'm going to reminisce a bit for an hour this evening. I might even rehash some fucking resentments I got. You know, I might... <laughs> But actually, volitionally, I'm going to think. I'm going to give myself an hour a day to really think about shit. Rather than, I think about shit all day, every day, and then I try to meditate for a half hour and not think about shit. Flip the schedule. Be present in what you're doing all day, every day. Give your, you need to, we need to plan. We need, the mind is beautiful. The fact that we can make plans. The fact that we can remember, that we can volitionally direct and be creative. And it's so useful when it's harnessed and when we're doing it intentionally, rather than just letting it have its way with us all day. I talked about the proliferation of thought. Did you see that in your meditation tonight? Um, the Buddha called it the... Buddhist word for it is papancha. The proliferation of thought, the mind's tendency to free associate. I found myself at one moment in the meditation, um, the thought arose, uh, fuck Clancy. That guy's a sexist pig. And I was like, why am I thinking about Clancy, who is the founder of the Pacific group, this old timer and Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's this thing that you can do of tracking it back. You ever see, find your mind like, and you're just in this thought and you're like, what, how did I get here? Why am I in Hawaii? Why am I in this judgmental thought about this old guy that died a couple of years ago that helped a whole bunch of people get sober, but it was also a fucking misogynistic pig. Why am I even thinking about this guy? And I, re I tracked it back. I looked at the time and I saw Jason Murphy in the back of the room. And I thought, oh, my friend Jason's here, that's nice. Came to my class with his girlfriend, Nancy. And then the thought arose, Oh, I should go to Jason's class on Wednesday. And then that led to a thought, oh, I was thinking about maybe going, my, this neighbor that I was talking to about motorcycles talked about, he, that he goes to Pacific Group on Wednesdays. I was like, oh, maybe I'll go to Pacific Group with him on Wednesdays. I was like, oh, Clancy's Pacific Group. All of a sudden I was like, fuck Clancy. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing was, I saw my friend Jason, which led to a thought about Wednesdays, which led to thinking about my neighbor whose motorcycle I'm trying to buy to the Wednesday night meeting to, and that proliferation of thought. And sometimes we can track it back to like, oh, I was here. I consciousness saw based on memory name. That's, that's that person thought about his class on Wednesdays. Wednesdays led to, 
how often are we doing that, right? Where we're off in some fucking future place, judgment or fear or whatever it is, based on something, and we can sometimes track it back. It was just seeing and remembering. And then the planning mind took over. And all of a sudden, and the you know, judging mind. So useful to observe our minds and see how they work, to really examine and see that proliferation and that, um, you know, sometimes it's seeing or it's hearing or, you know, like a song comes on and the association with music and all of a sudden you're back in your kind of formative, where, where was that music in your life? Memories maybe pleasant reminiscing, maybe resentments, maybe fears. You see something. Sound, I feel like, is a big one for me. Often in meditation, eyes closed, hearing the traffic, or John from the tattoo shop almost every Monday night starts his motorcycle right when we're meditating. And then I watch my mind start thinking about motorcycles. And all, you know, it's like, why am I thinking? I'm trying to just be in here, but there goes my mind. Harley Davidson, fucking cool. Just meditating, but that's where my mind went because of the sound and the association and the proliferation of thought. Tracking it back, reflecting. I didn't do it, but... Um, my friend Jason Siff, after meditate, he says, after meditation, do a journal. Rather than trying to catch it all in real time, journal about what came through your mind during the meditation. And that that's a one, one way to get insight into your mind's tendencies. Take a few minutes after you finish the sitting to say, what just happened? Well, well, well Jason and Clancy and motorcycles and, you know, My mind went on to all these different places. The first line in the uh, Dhammapada is something like, which is the Buddha's teachings on psychology, sometimes it's called. Uh, it's a core Buddhist text. It's, and the first line is something like, the mind is the forerunner of all things. The untrained mind that is filled with ignorance and greed and, and hatred, um, you know, will create that in our lives. The trained mind, which is filled with wisdom and love and compassion and insight into the impersonal nature of, of the mind, of the self, the absence of a thinker, just thoughts without a thinker, is the source of liberation, is the, is the path to freedom. One of the ways that I think about this sometimes is um, to what extent are we addicted to our minds? identified. I say addicted, but what I really mean is identified. And that 
thing I brought up about the questions of the alcoholic and the drinking problem and replacing that with how much of a thinking problem do we have? Thinking isn't a problem, right? Really like the mind, thoughts, natural, normal, just like the breath coming and going, the mind thinks. But if we're identified with believing it and thinking that the contents of our thoughts are true and that they are who we are, then of course we're going to suffer so much, so much unnecessary suffering if we're believing our minds all of the time. Because the mind, the second noble truth of Buddhism, the mind's you know, primary mode is craving for sense pleasures. So we have this survival instinct of the, of the human experience that craves for sense pleasures. How much of your mind is about craving for sense pleasures? So we have this repetitive craving that the, is the mind's default. It's the human mind's default, craving for sense pleasures, not just because you're a junkie, because you're a human. This is the teaching. This is the, the Dhamma, the truth. But right alongside of that repetitive craving of the human condition is a negativity bias. I want pleasure. I hate pain. And this kind of negative or pessimistic tendency of the mind to focus on what's wrong, what's not pleasant, what's painful, what has been painful in the past, what might be painful in the future. None of that shit is your fault. You're not, none of us are doing, none of it's very uh, volitional. Not a lot of agency in the mind's natural tendency towards craving and aversion, towards judgment and fear. But meditation is an intervention. Mindfulness is an intervention beginning to see what's happening in real time, being able to reflect, track back, like, oh, okay, where my mind was there, let me track it back. And start to disengage, start to break our addiction, our identification, our belief in the thinking mind our faith in our own thoughts, our confidence in our own thoughts, especially um, when, you know, kind of, when they're, they're in the negative, negative karma producing section. There's a, a, a place in the Buddha's teachings where he says, when the unwholesome thoughts arise, abandon them. When the wholesome thoughts arise, cherish them. But you have to be mindful to have that discernment of, is this a wholesome thought? And, you know, you can make the list of wholesome thoughts are kind. They're compassionate. They're generous. They're loving. They're not fuck Clancy. <laughs> right? They're not judgmental, critical, resentful, uh, angry, 
selfish, self-centered, afraid. And so when those negative thoughts come in, you can say, "Mm, look at that. More negativity, more judgment, more fear, more unwholesome mind states, not worth spending much energy in identifying with or indulging in. Abandon, let go. Abandon identification with them. But when the wholesome thoughts, when there's thoughts of love, of kindness, of generosity, of compassion, of hang out, cherish. Oh, this is a thought about joy. This is a thought about love. This is a thought about, you know, something beautiful, you know, something worth reflecting on, worth engaging with. And so, and they're also, you know, so often together, like I said, you know, so your mind says, oh, hey, you know, fuck this person, or I hate them, or they're like this. And then you can replace it. The mind says, oh, I can meet that person with forgiveness. I could meet that person with with compassion. I could meet that unwholesome thought with a wholesome response, with a wise response. The mind is the forerunner of all things. We're training our minds. Buddhism is... Uh, humanist psychology, not a mystical spiritual path that thinks that there's some sort of external forces that are going to come into you and purify your self, but through our own efforts, turning towards mindfulness, turning towards the mind, and seeing that all of the causes of suffering, everything that's Hurting you and your life is in your own head. How you're relating. Now, maybe a little too strong of a statement. There's probably external factors that are also hurting us, but how we're responding to it is the difference between suffering or not suffering. All of the suffering we're experiencing is based on how we are relating to the thoughts about what's happening in our life or in the world. There's a bunch of places in the teachings where the Buddha says, we create the world with our own minds. We create the world. He's looking at this teaching, this, forget the full context, but some uh, being comes, comes to the Buddha and he's, he says, I, you know, I developed this ability to walk, um, you know, through the sky, and I walked, and I walked, and I walked, and I walked, and I could never reach the end of the world. I just kept going. No matter how far I walked, I could never reach the end of the world. And the Buddha said to him, he said, that's because you can't reach the end of the world by walking. It's not possible. He said, you can only reach the end of the world by an internal awareness that you created the world in the first place. You can't get there externally. It's an internal journey. By seeing that my mind is creating the world. And that doesn't mean that we're, you know, that the world is a total illusion, but our perception of the world is our perception. And we can take full responsibility for that and we can radically shift how we see, how we respond, how personal 
we take the mind, we create the world. It's the forerunner. And this proliferation of thought. So interesting. Check it out in your life. When you find yourself thinking about something and you're like, why, why am I fucking thinking about this? Track it back. What's leading to that repetitive cycle of thoughts? Is it an external sound, sight, smell, taste? Is it a feeling? And maybe sometimes it's an emotion. I feel lonely. I start thinking about my ex. <laughs> I feel lonely. I start thinking about, the, you know, fantasizing about a relationship, a future imagined fantasy. Track it back. Oh, it's loneliness. What if I just tend to that experience of being alone? I feel anxious. What if I just tend to... Anxiety feels like this. My mind makes up all of these stories and makes it worse and worse and catastrophizes. What if I just come back to the direct experience of that emotion, of that sensation? Breaking our addiction to our minds, part of the goal. But unlike, you know, so many of us are in recovery from addictions and we've successfully stopped drinking alcohol. That's all us alcoholics who stopped drinking, stopped shooting dope, stopped smoking crack. Abstinence. Now, the reality is we are addicted to our minds, but you can't be abstinent from thinking. You do have a thinking problem. But you can't abstain from thinking. You know, there's that suggestion like, well, give yourself an hour every evening to think. The rest of the day, just be present. Thoughts will be there, but don't be too involved in them. Just be here, present with what you're doing while you're doing it. Not so much in the future, not so much in the planning, not so much in the what a shift would that be in your life if you were present all day except for that hour in the evening where like, I'm going to fucking plan and remember this evening for an hour, get it done, strategize. I'm going to suffer a bit because I got some resentments I really want to indulge in. This evening, I'll give them time. The recovering, uh, this, you know, to use this analogy, uh, it has to be a bit more, not a full abstinence, like bottom lines. It's like the Buddha's teaching where he says, abandon those unwholesome thought patterns, cherish the, the wholesome. Um, it's like a food addict. I don't know if anybody in the Sangha right now has re recovered from uh, food-based eating, dis what, disordered eating, food addiction disordered eating, um, where you can't be abstinent, right? If you're a food addict, you can't just stop eating. There's no abstinence from food. But you can have bottom line, what's, what some of them talk about, bottom line behavior. Some talk about the inner circles, the outer circles. 
you can abstain from flour and sugar and, and you can get abstinence. I, pra I practice abstinence from indulging in sugar. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I can't stop eating the vegetables and the proteins. I need that stuff for existence. But you can have that same attitude towards your mind. I am going to take a practice, a, a vow to abstain from indulging in unwholesome thought patterns. When they arise, I'm going to return to the present time experience. I'm not going to let my awareness go off and indulge in hatred. I'm going to replace it with forgiveness. I'm going to come back to present time awareness. I'm not going to indulge in resentment. You can't stop your mind from resenting. You know that by now, right? It just does it all by itself. But you, there is a choice. There's an intervention of how much am I going to incarnate as it? I'm angry rather than just, yeah, resentments arising and passing. So breaking our addiction to the mind and training the uh, mind in this way is much more like uh, finding a, a balanced and healthy diet of thought. And I know like, you know, in recovery, uh, it's, it can be so all or none, like you're just, you know, absent. And then I think a lot of recovery people come to meditation and think like, well, I got to just stop thinking. And this, I think it's the greatest miss understanding of meditation. I'm going to come in here. I'm going to stop my thoughts. I'm going to become tranquil. And you, it's, you can do that. You can meditate hard enough to get so concentrated that you stop your thoughts, but it's not even that useful. I mean, you'll have some experiences where you have these like tranquil, quiet, thoughtless meditations. But then when you're not that concentrated, you're still totally identified with the thoughts and the contents and you think that you are your mind again. And you've just learned how to tune it out. The Buddhist teaching is not about a silent mind. It's about a wise relationship to the loud mind, to the reality mind. Sometimes it will be quiet. Sometimes it will be loud. Sometimes it will be kind. Sometimes it will be not so kind. The end of suffering is when we can meet whatever's happening in the mind with wisdom, with the wisdom that it's not that personal. It's not self. It's not who I am. And it's not worth suffering about. And that often we learn, oh, it's calling for compassion. It's calling for non-attachment calling for forgiveness. We learned how to respond to what's arising in our minds. So I'll leave it there. We just have a few minutes if there's questions or comments, clarifications, anything in the room or online. If you have a question online, you can um, raise your hand. It's in the reactions tab down at the bottom of the screen.
questions about how to relate to your mind in a way that will alleviate suffering in your life. And if you have specifics, we could, speaking about it in a pretty general way. I'm kind of curious how uh, could meta practice be kind of like avoidant when it's like traditional thoughts versus non-traditional thoughts. Uh, the question for those at home is: um, Could loving kindness meta practice? be used, I'll add that, as an avoidance, because it's volitionally training the mind to say, may I be happy, may I be at ease, may I be free, may all beings be happy, may all beings be at ease, may all beings be free. Yes, on some level, we can use that as a avoidance technique. But it's a healthy avoidance technique. And it's also creating neuropathways of kindness and love. And so it's a really healthy way to train your mind. You don't want to do it all day, every day. That's why we have this balance of mindfulness, mind, like we're doing tonight, present time observing. So you want some of your practice to be present time, non-judgmental kind awareness. But loving kindness, in my experience, developed more and more of the ability to respond with kindness to the present time experience. So it's a very skillful technique of bringing in the love, the kindness, the friendliness, the compassion, the forgiveness, all of those heart practices where we repeat the phrases and we're training the mind to just focus, concentrate on those phrases. Yeah, they on some level are avoiding just being with the unadulterated reality of the present time but they're creating healthy mind habits that serve us so much when we turn towards mindfulness. Now we can be mindful with loving kindness, with compassion, with forgiveness. And so they're useful companion to mindfulness. My sense. Do both every day for the rest of your life. Derek at home, go ahead. So my question was, um, I'll use an example of like a piece of cake. Um, if I recognize I'm craving a piece of cake, I can track my thoughts and say, okay, I know this isn't actually gonna make me happy. But since it doesn't actually, at least that hasn't helped me with, let's say the craving, would you, reckon, would you recommend then sitting with the craving itself and being mindful of that or? You mean, uh, and should we ever eat the cake? Sure, I guess so. Oh. Well, I think being able to identify it like the way that you're saying of like, yep, this is um, a craving to indulge in a sense pleasure. The more that we can know, this is not going to make, we can think it through and we know this is not going to, this is a, such a temporary sense pleasure and then we, you know, there's some choice of, am I going to indulge in it or not indulge in it? It's not that healthy, but it's so delicious. Um, and then sometimes you choose like, yes, of course I'm going to indulge in this fucking piece of cake. It's, you know, and sometimes you say, 
you know, I don't need to have the cake every time. My mind, it, it depends also on your addiction because if your mind tells you you should eat cake every day, then you should probably really investigate that and be like, cakes are for special occasions. <laughs> you know, I really don't need to be eating cake every day. But occasionally at Thanksgiving, when the cakes come out, have a piece of cake. Know that it's not the source of happiness and it's a temporary sense pleasure. But also know that it's absolutely okay to not indulge in satisfying the cravings. So I know it's not the best answer. Uh, ultimately, the answer is, you know, depends on the situation. It also depends on your relationship to sugar and flour. And are you somebody that can have a piece of cake once in a while? It's like, you know, drugs. Like there are people who, you know, can get high once in a while. And then there's those of us who, if we start, we won't stop. And some people are like that with cake too. If I start eating cake, I'm going to pretty soon be eating cake every day because it's so fucking delicious. I remember the first time I was at a, I didn't know much about food addiction. And I heard this person at a recovery uh, event talk about how they um, were recovering from alcoholism and then it showed their addiction shifted to cake. And they said, and you know, I had a slice of cake and it was so good. And then I started getting a slice. And she said, she said, and then I started getting a sheet cake, like the full fucking sheet cakes and eating the whole thing every day in secret, in shame, in full eating, you know, just like I'll eat the, and then purging it and just being like, I can't fucking hold a sheet cake, but I can get it in. And so, you know, I know that's not quite your question, Derek, but... <laughs> Sometimes it's fine, you know, to indulge in some sense pleasures and eat the cake. But also some of us need to know it's not okay for me. You know, that N.A. saying like one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And so some of us should never eat cake again. And that's okay to have that sort of renunciation. I'm not going to indulge in that because I don't have a ability to have balance with it. For most people that don't have that sort of food-based addiction, yeah, you get to choose empty calories that are delicious or not. Occasionally, do it, you know, in the right circumstance. I'll leave it there for tonight. It's almost nine. Uh, good to see everybody. I'm going to be in New Mexico teaching a retreat next week. Jason's going to be covering um, come to class and uh, support each other. Come, come support Jason, support the Sangha. Um, Against the Stream needs your help, your support. Uh, I need to put together a sort of end of the year fundraising. Um, be as generous as you can. If you can become a monthly supporter of Against the Stream, um, we've got a few thousand dollars a month overhead with the rent and utilities and um, just the kind of uh, gas bill is uh, hundreds of dollars every month just to, like, to keep the gas and electricity, whether it's the AC or the heat. or um, And all of that comes from the community support. You know, we don't, I don't charge for the class. Uh, everybody's welcome, whether you have money to donate or not. But if you do, please make it part of your practice to be generous, to support us. We're a nonprofit. We're technically, we're a church. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we don't do tithing, but I sometimes, you know, somebody said to me years ago, like, well, why don't you just suggest tithing to the community? And I was like, what the fuck is tithing? <laughs> and he's like, that's, you know, in a lot of churches, a lot of spiritual communities, the encouragement is to offer 10% of your yearly income to the, to support the community, to support the church, to support the, um, so, you know, think about how much you donate and then think of like, is it 10%? <laughs> is it even one percent um could you give more do you feel moved to give more motivated to give more um always welcome here i don't love the fundraising but it's part of it's the necessity for us to be here your generosity so for the drop-in class if you can give 20 bucks 25 bucks great um if you can become a monthly supporter you do that on the website uh, if you buy the t-shirts, you know, we make a few bucks. If you buy the, there's new Dharma Punk sweatshirts against the stream t-shirts. If you buy the merch or the books that supports the center, all of that money uh, helps us to continue to exist. So, uh, you know, buy your friends some t-shirts for Christmas. And um, I don't have anybody at the, I shouldn't have said that because I don't have anybody at the desk tonight. Tara's not here, but if you do want something, let me know. I'll help you or someone else will help you figure out how to do that. Um, there's a bowl for cash donations. There's a, a Venmo and a PayPal on the desk there if you want to do the online donations. I have secured a um, location for the Against the Stream Memorial Day retreat. We'll be having it up near Big Bear Running Springs. So we'll be having our annual um, Memorial Day retreat. Um, I think it's May 27th through 29th this year. And the next Against the Stream retreat is in Portugal. Uh, that guy, Jason Sif, that I was talking about earlier, and I are going to teach a 10-day retreat in Portugal, uh, March 16th through 26th, 10 days, something like that. So consider coming to the Portugal retreat. It's up for registration now. Uh, we can only take about 30 people, so it'll probably sell out. I think it's halfway full already. If you're planning to come to Portugal in March, register early. Um, it's, an only, it's only a $600 cost to do this 10-day retreat in Portugal, which um, you, know, you still have to get over there. You probably have to spend a few hundred on flying to, to Lisbon and, and getting over there. But um, pretty affordable still, even with the flights to get over there because it's such a cheap retreat. And, um, Hope some of you join me for that. Many goodness that comes from our practice, discussion of the Buddha's Dharma, be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May we each get as free as possible in this lifetime and together create a positive change on this planet. Thank you. See you soon. I'll be back week after next. Don't ditch class next week. Day longs. Oh, that's right. I have a day long. Thank, thanks for the reminder. I have a day long this Saturday from nine to four. Um, join me if you'd like. Information's on the website, kensastream.com. Uh, it's $100 to register. If you want to come and you don't have the money, you're welcome to come as a scholarship. If you can afford it, pay for it. Saturday, 9 a.m. You can just show up. It'd be fine. Thanks for the reminder, mom. Here. 9 a.m. You can also do it online. If you want to do it online, you can't afford it. Just send us an email. We'll send you the 
the link. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.